I think we should, we should just make that change. Good afternoon, good morning means the same thing here, all right? I fall into that all the time. And uh, so we're in 1 Peter chapter 4 today. If you'd open your Bibles with me there. I'd like to make a comment about uh, our, our worship music here. I'm just so thankful. Over these many, many months, the Lord's allowed me to come for the various people who come up and use their gifts and talents for the, for the Lord's sake here. Uh, last week, we were talking in 1 Peter chapter 4 about using our gifts and those who serve through the strength that God provides. And I've seen consistently from those who've come up here this desire to lead us before God's throne. And I'm just so thankful for that. And... And I'd simply say this, if you have gifts of that nature, I encourage you to volunteer, to be involved. Uh, I I just think of, you know, sometimes we we look at at certain activities and certain things and think, you know, those may seem small to some, but we serve a God who never forgets a cup of water that's been handed in his name. And so I'm thankful for the service that these musicians have provided to us, and it's been a blessing to me over these many months. Well, we're here in 1 Peter chapter 4. Yeah. And I'll tell you, it, it, it can be a difficult thing, and so I'm, I'm grateful for their service to us. Well, here we are in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. We're going to be tackling a, a bit of a larger passage today, and so I'll need to move quickly as we do the Lord's Supper as well today, but... In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, here's what Peter says. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Father in heaven, we thank you that you've given to us another passage of scripture to look at this week. We desire to know more of your mind I thank you for the various saints you have placed in this assembly who desire to be useful in your service, and I thank you for the way they use their gifts. I'm so grateful this morning or this afternoon to be able to proclaim your word, and I ask that you would take your word and apply it to your people's hearts so that you would be glorified in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have you ever stayed in in an Airbnb? One of the things that Airbnb has been known for in more recent years, though it didn't used to be this way, is that when you arrive at an Airbnb, there's a list, a list of things you should and should not do at an Airbnb. Imagine you've signed up for an Airbnb, you show up, there's the list. 
It says, don't turn off the red switch, number one. Number two, don't put trash in the yellow bin. Number three, don't turn off the red switch. Number four, don't leave the water on in the back room. Next one, don't turn off the red switch. Next one, don't leave the back door unlocked. And finally, don't turn off the red switch. Let me ask you, do they want you to turn off the red switch? And you know, perhaps somebody here owns an Airbnb and you know exactly what's going to happen. Somebody's going to turn off the red switch. <laughs> but the idea is by repetition, repeating the same thing, you're able to accomplish or you're able to communicate the importance of something. We're coming to a passage here where in, to some degree, as we've walked through all of 1 Peter, we might come to a point and we say, Peter, you've already said this. You've said the content of what we're about to hear this, this afternoon. And there are some unique aspects of the passage we're about to look at. But the main theme is what Peter has been talking about, suffering for Christ. And if we ask the question, why, Peter, do you keep coming back to this, question, or this, this topic? It's because God's people need to hear about it. It's a form of instruction that we need to hear. And I'm convinced in our per current cultural day, we need to hear it quite well. Of course, Peter's readers needed to hear it, but we need to hear it. And God doesn't repeat himself accidentally. God says things multiple times because he wants us to hear him. So this, more, this afternoon, we're going to be looking at a passage that talks about some themes that we've addressed already. And what I'd like to suggest is that as Peter talks about the content of suffering, he says there are three things that you should do with suffering that comes in your life. And then he's going to say there are three things you should not do with them. And in fact, I'm going to take them out of order. We're going to first start with the things we should not do with suffering. And then we're going to address the three things we should do with suffering. And the first might sound similar to something we read not long ago. Notice Peter says here in chapter 4, verse 12, beloved, by the way, Beloved here, I think, is beloved by God. Those who have been loved by God. And, and let me just, before we even jump into the passage, remind you that suffering does not mean God does not love you. Because here Peter's about to say, beloved. Those who are enduring suffering according to God's will. So they are loved by God. And then he says this, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Has something happened to you that you thought was strange? You thought, this is really odd. I can't believe that this took place. And you're surprised at it. Peter here says, don't be surprised when a fiery trial comes upon you. Now, what fiery trial is he talking about? And there have been some who, looking back at the cultural context in which 1 Peter is written, noting the time period around 62 AD, noting what's happening in Rome at the time, answer the question, the fiery trial very well may be Rome, or Nero in Rome burning Christians. And, he, and they say, this might be the fiery trial. I think there's a simpler explanation. 
I think the fiery trial just goes back to chapter 1, verse 6. If you have your Bibles, you can look back there. We, we looked at it a long time ago. Remember, Peter is talking about the glorious blessing of being in Christ, and then he says this. In this, that is in, in the redemption you've been given, in the new birth you've been granted, you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The passage there in 1 Peter 1.6 likens our faith to gold. In fact, it suggests that our faith is better than gold. But it says that faith, just like gold, is tested by fire. And fire is simply shorthand for grievous trial, difficult trial. Now, what trial is Peter talking about here? Now, it becomes quite evident as we go through the passage that he's talking about a specific type of trial. He's talking about suffering for one's faith. And this is a type of trial. But I think we can broaden the passage to refer to any trial that we endure, whether it might be suffering for the faith or whatever else. Here's what Peter says. Don't be surprised when you enter into trial as though something strange or odd is happening. It's, it shouldn't be in the life of the believer that we say, boy, I can't even believe that this would take place. Well, why should that not be surprising to us? I think there are a number of reasons why this should not be surprising to us. It, Peter here says, God gives us such trials to test us. It comes to test you, to refine you, to make you better. God is, according to Hebrews chapter 12, a God who loves us deeply. And the parent who loves their child allows them to go through difficulty sometimes to make them stronger. I was just recently reading an article. Uh, I forget what major newspaper this article was in, but it was talking about how to make your kids happy. And it said the, the key to making your kids happy is to allow them to be not happy. And I smiled. Now, that's not because I'm a father who likes to make my kids unhappy, but because I recognize that there are times where in, in situations of life, you allow your children, you allow those you love to go through some form of difficulty that's going to make it easier on them in the future. They will be strengthened by it. And in the same way, this is why we should not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon us to test us. I mean, this is the reason why Peter, earlier in this passage, says rejoice in your trials. This is why James and Paul also can say the same thing. But there's another reason why we shouldn't actually be all that surprised. And that is that Scripture actually tells us that such things are going to happen to you. It, 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 Jesus tells us, I mean, it, you're in the Matthew 13, Jesus is using the analogy of the, the field. And he's talking about the, the seed that's been planted. And he talks about the fact that every individual seed that's planted endures difficulty. And so the, the, the word immediately falls away if it cannot endure the affliction or the persecution when it arises. The passage is indicating that affliction and persecution will arise. 
Or how about Matthew 24, 9? They will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name, because of me. We cannot say that Jesus didn't warn us that things would not always be great for the believer. That is, always be uh, without difficulty for the believer. How about John 15, 20? A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, what does Jesus say? They'll persecute you also. Philippians 1.29, for to you it has been granted. And I love this passage for a number of reasons. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, and we rejoice. It's been granted to us, given to us, that we might believe in him. But notice, not only to believe in him, but to also suffer for his name. At the one hand, it's been granted to you this opportunity to believe and to become elect, right? To be one of God's elect. And yet at the same time, to believe makes us the exile, elect exile, that narrative we've been pushing through in the book of First Peter. So should we be surprised? We shouldn't. In fact, one more passage, 1 Thessalonians 3, 2 to 4, I think makes this most explicit for us. Paul talking to the church who has gone through great tribulation. If you read uh, the founding in the book of Acts of the Thessalonian church, they went through great trial. Even Paul did when he was there. He had to escape. He sends Timothy back. Timothy wasn't with them when he was there, so he can go back there. And so he sends Timothy to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we are destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted. Do you see what Paul is saying? I mean, that line, for you know quite well that we are destined for them. Again, I think sometimes this comes as a surprise to Western Christians who have not experienced difficulty for their faith. This is not surprising to very many people in the, in the broader world who've experienced this for years and years. And we need to acclimate to this. We recognize that it is not surprising. I, you know, sometimes I think believers turn on the news and they, they find out that we're unpopular in the world and they're surprised. <laughs> we'll read the Bible. It suggests to us that the world will not be on our side. So, don't be surprised. In, in, in fact, quite interesting. Do you remember just a few sermons ago, I talked about a passage earlier in chapter 4 in which Peter said, the world is surprised at you because you don't do what they do. But don't you be surprised at them because they're going to do what they're going to do. And so let's not be surprised. Remember, we're talking three things we should not do with our suffering. Three things we should. First thing we shouldn't do is be surprised. The second thing, and this should just be straightforward Christian testimony for us, don't be the source of your own suffering. And Peter makes this explicit. Uh, when he says, but let none of you, this is verse 15 of chapter 4, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, or a meddler. 
Now, Paul or Peter has mentioned on numerous occasions that it is possible that God's people would be persecuted not because of their own righteousness, but because of their own sinfulness. In fact, when he was talking to the slave, he says to them, what credit is it if you do evil and suffer for it? But if you do good and suffer for it, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And in the same way, when we endure suffering for righteousness, there is blessing. When we endure persecution for unrighteousness, there is not blessing. Now, Peter gives us a series of, of admonitions here. He says, don't be a murderer. Don't be a thief. Don't be an evildoer. And then don't be a meddler. That fourth one seems a little odd, doesn't it? All right, we've got these four people up here. This one's a murderer, a thief. Here's just the world's renowned evildoer. And this person keeps getting in other people's business. You think, well, well, wait a second. But I think, I think the reason that uh, Peter highlights this is because what, you know, he's saying don't be accused of the major stuff. But also don't be the sort of person who ever, all your neighbors are upset with you because you're a meddler. Don't be the person who's always getting in other people's affairs. That's actually the word, what the word means. It means putting your nose in somebody else's affairs. And really, I think what Peter's saying is that we ought to care not merely about being, uh, making sure that we do all things righteously, but we also ought to care about how we present ourselves to our neighbors. We ought to be people who show forth the love of Christ to all people. And the bottom line is, Peter here says, when you suffer, then make sure it's not because you did something. Don't be the source of your suffering. Third thing, don't be ashamed of your suffering. You know our world wants you to be ashamed of being a Christian, don't you? I think that's the goal in a lot of situations, is to make it so that you are ashamed of holding to the position you hold to. I can't remember if it was in this in, in, the, in a sermon recently that I mentioned this, so if I did, you'll, you'll have to forgive me, but I remember being a college student, and yeah, that was about 20 years ago now, but I remember being a college student, and I was at the University of Michigan, the Flint campus, and I was taking a class on, in psychology. And actually, there, there were two classes I took on psychology, both of which something similar happened. But in this class in psychology, the professor asked in the class, does anyone here believe that there is a judgment to come and that if I don't believe in Jesus, then I'm going to experience hell? Please raise your hand. A class of probably 50, 60 people. And I think me and one other person raised their hand. There was another class I was in, and uh, this was another psychology class in which the professor said, everybody stand up in class. And it probably was a class about the same size as this class here, or the, the, this group here. And he said, I would like all of the people who believe that uh, premarital sex is wrong to go to this side of the room, and everybody else over here. And so me and you know, five other students head over this direction, 
And we're just looked at as totally crazy. I mean, could you, I mean, it, it's almost this experience in which we are supposed to feel the shame of holding the position we hold to. I'm convinced that both of those professors were doing that intentionally to try and shame Christians into no longer holding to the positions they hold to. But you see, if I didn't raise my hand, if I didn't stand on the right side, then I would have been ashamed and I would not have been loving everyone that was there. Let's go back to a sermon we talked about just a little while ago. Yes, everybody's headed this way and I'm headed that way, but it's the very fact that I'm headed that way that's making some of them question coming this way. And so you have to stand, you have to raise your hand, despite the fact that they're trying to shame you. And do not, this is what Peter's saying, do not be ashamed of your suffering. Uh, notice it is verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. In, the, in Peter's cultural context, shame and honor were the most significant things you had. And in much of the Eastern world, this is still the case. Your honor is the most important, valuable asset you have. You've heard of honor killings. You've heard of honor suicides. People who feel like their honor has been taken and they're shamed will kill themselves or kill a member of their family in order to restore honor. And in this, this cultural context, there was much pressure put on Peter's audience to be ashamed of the positions that they had taken. And Peter encourages them and says, don't be ashamed. And let me just say, from a pastoral perspective, we live in a culture also that will do all it can to make us feel ashamed of our biblical positions, of what the scripture teaches, about the various things that we've talked about throughout the book of 1 Peter. And all I can simply say is don't be ashamed. Hold fast to the word of God. And you say, well, everybody's going the other direction. That's the point. Somebody needs to stand up. Somebody needs to say this isn't right. And never forget that what Scripture tells us is that though we are judged in the flesh the way people are, we'll be raised in the spirit the way God is. That is that at the end of the day, the final judgment will not be based upon what mankind thought. It's going to be based upon what God thinks. And so let's hold his values higher than the values of the world. So, three don'ts. Let's turn then to what we should do. We've mentioned three things we should not do in suffering. Let's mention the three things that Peter tells us we should do in our suffering. And this should sound familiar because, again, Peter is repeating it for us so that we don't miss it. It's the don't turn the red light switch off sort of thing that Peter mentions for us. And that is rejoice in your suffering. Rejoice in your suffering. Notice again, he says, beloved, don't be surprised at the suffering. And then verse 13, but rejoice. Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Do you see what Peter's doing? Is he's saying, you are suffering. And when you suffer, do you know what you're doing? You're doing the same thing Jesus did. You're, you're walking in the footsteps of Jesus. You're sharing in Christ's suffering. 
So rejoice in that. And then he notes why it is that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. That is, Jesus is going to return one day and all of his glory is going to be made known. And when it is, then you will be able to celebrate in that. Again, Peter is not alone in this rather strange statement. James says, rather oddly, count it all joy. And that, I mean, that, that really is weird. Here's a difficulty, here's a challenge, a trial, a persecution that comes upon us. Count it complete joy when you meet various kinds of trials. And James goes on to tell us why. Because the testing of your faith produces a steadfastness and steadfastness produces a perfection in us, a completion, so that we are no longer lacking in anything. In other words, we become mature through the difficulties we face. Romans 3, same sort of situation. Not only that, Paul says, but we rejoice in our sufferings. What, what he's just said is, we rejoice in our salvation. And then he says, not only do we rejoice in our salvation, but we rejoice in our sufferings. How do you get to that point? You get to that point because you really believe in the salvation that he just talked about. We rejoice in salvation, and then we rejoice in sufferings. Why? Because the sufferings produce endurance. And he says, you know this, that suffering produces endurance. Endurance, character, character, hope, and hope will never put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. So we rejoice because, as these men remind us, trials are designed by God to refine us and to fill our eternal rewards, which is what Jesus says when he talks in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are you when people insult you. You ever feel that way? Does it feel blessed? Sometimes people have translated Jesus's beatitudes. This is the word for blessing in Greek, the beatitudes as happy. I don't think that's the right way of translating them. I think blessed is the right translation because the idea isn't that when I hear someone insult me, I can't help but smile. That, that doesn't tend to be the case. But what it is, is I can recognize that their curse means my blessing. Their curse means my blessing. You remember the, the whole thing about Balak? This is, this is the New Testament counterpart. You're cursed by someone else, and God says, I'll bless them. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. The, the language there could be translated rejoice and be exceptionally glad. Rejoice, leap for joy. Why? Because great is your reward in heaven. And if we've set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ, as Peter tells us earlier, then when we are persecuted for righteousness' sake, then we rejoice because it is filling up the reward that we will have when the Lord returns. But there's another thing that comes about at the same time. So we said the first thing is to rejoice in our suffering. The second is to accept the blessing of suffering. And this goes along with what we just mentioned. But Peter makes it explicit here 
Because he says that the spirit of glory and of God rests on us. Notice verse 14. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now, I don't want to get too deep into the woods here of the grammar of this passage, but literally in the Greek it says this, the of glory and the spirit of God rests on you. What is the glory referring to? Now you'll notice that the ESV takes glory to refer to the spirit, the spirit of glory. But I'm not convinced it is. I think it goes back to verse 13. Notice back there, rejoice that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And then he says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, and here's why, because that glory, the glory that is reserved for people when the Lord returns, that glory is yours, and you know you possess the Spirit of God. So I think two things rest on believers who suffer. First, a promise of eschatological glory. That just means glory that is reserved for the end times. Remember way back in 1.6, he says that if you pass the test of trial, then you'll receive praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And here he's simply saying this eschatological glory that Jesus is bringing with him at his return is going to be yours if you suffer for Christ. But then he says a second thing. He says, not only will you have this, this glory, but you'll also have this second thing. The spirit of God rests upon you. What does Peter mean by this? I think what he's indicating is that by the very means of experiencing such difficulty, you have the hope of eternal life. You have a, the, the seal of the very Holy Spirit. You remember in Ephesians, it says you are sealed to the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit. That seal is the stamp of ownership. And I think what, Jesus, or what Peter's saying here is, when you suffer for Christ... You are showing the badge of God's ownership on your life. In fact, I think this follows straight from what Jesus himself said. We just read this passage, but we didn't finish it because Jesus actually tells us two reasons we should rejoice in our sufferings. He says, rejoice and be glad. First, because your reward is great in heaven. I think that's the eschatological glory that he promises. But then notice the second thing he says. For in the same way, they, pro they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know, what Peter, you know what Jesus was saying to his audience there in the Sermon on the Mount? He says, look, when people persecute you, rejoice because you are identifying with the people of God. Do you see the prophets back there? What did they do to them? They persecuted them. And you know what? We have one more step because we can look back at the prophets and say they were persecuted. We can look at Jesus and what happened to Jesus? He was persecuted. And if the people of God in the Old Testament were persecuted by the world, if the people of God, when Jesus walked this earth, were persecuted, if the saints in Paul's day and Peter's day were persecuted, then what do we expect today? We shouldn't be surprised, right? That's what Peter says. Don't be surprised. But rejoice insofar as you know to the degree that you suffer for the name of Christ that he has made you different. 
He's the one who made you different, and therefore you suffer at the hands of the world that is not different. So we accept the blessing of suffering. And then the final thing I want to mention is that we glorify God in our suffering. And I think that this is the opposite side of this is the opposite side of being ashamed. We don't, we're, we're not ashamed of our suffering, but you know what we do in the midst of that suffering? We send the reflection back to God. And though our world looks at us and mocks us, and they, they may seek to make us ashamed, and though in that moment they may simply mock us and they feel no, no, no pang of conscience, do you know what I pray? That my standing there on one side of the room, that my holding my hand up did, maybe not for the professor, who knows, but perhaps for others, that they saw Jesus in me, that they saw a difference, and they saw there's somebody willing to stand up for what they believe, because everybody else is just going the same way. But here's someone who thinks something different. Here's someone who knows what he believes, why does he believe that? And these are opportunities for the reflection of God's own glory to go back to him. Now, we've walked them through the three things we shouldn't do with suffering. We've walked through the three, three things we should do. But let me note, it, note that verses 17 to 19 conclude our passage. And it may initially sound like an odd conclusion, but I think we'll see why he concludes it this way. Here again is what he says. Here's, here's the reason we ought to, do, to avoid these three things and do these three things. It's because the judgment of God begins with the people of God. The judgment of God begins with the people of God. This is what he says in verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? This passage is teaching us that there's a good reason why we ought to avoid these three things and do these three things. Because right now, our persecution, our trials that God is allowing us to go through are the very process by which he is separating the sheep from the goats. Do you remember again Jesus' parable of the soils? He talks about four types of soils. We're going to skip that first soil that is rocky soil. It doesn't receive the word. But the one sown on rocky soil he talks of, and they have no root in themselves but endure for a little while. And then notice he says, then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. What he's saying is that there are some, some even potentially that would sit in these pews, who would hear the word of God, who would say that they've accepted the word of God, and yet when tribulation or persecution arises on account of God's word, they're nowhere to be found. They've left the assembly of God's people because they have fallen away. Do you see then how these trials and these difficulties, they separate the sheep from the goats, those who truly believe from those who do not? He gives a third type of soil. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things enter in 
They choke the word. And ultimately, they are unfruitful. And he says again that there is another type of soil that when the difficulties of life come, when the cares of this world, when the pleasures of this world beckon and call, they don't stay with the assembly of God's people. And here's what I think Peter is then saying to us. He's saying the judgment of God, the separation of the sheep and the goats, those who are really among God's people and those who are not, those who have possession of God's spirit and those who do not, that's happening right now. That's happening through the difficulties and trials our church is facing. That's happening through the, through the various <clears throat> cares of this world and the riches that spring up that begin to pull people away from the gospel of God. And some of us may want to say this, <clears throat> and maybe here you are here among us, and you are not a believer, and you say, boy, this whole Christianity thing doesn't look all that appealing. You're going through all this difficulty, you're going through all this that Peter talks about, why would I want to be among you? And Peter gives a real good answer at the end of this passage. Because he says <clears throat> two things. He says, listen. If it begins with us, if it begins with the assembly of people who are already calling upon God's name, if that judgment is already on us, what do you think is going to happen to people who don't obey the gospel of God? What do you think is going to happen to the people on the outside who are not seeking to obey the word of God? He gives another analogy. He says, if the righteous is scarcely saved, that really means if the righteous is with great difficulty saved, which is exactly what Jesus says. Remember, he talks about the narrow path, the difficult path. And if it is through a difficult path that we ultimately end up in eternal riches, he asks this question, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? In other words, what will become of all those who walk on the broad, easy path? And here, in essence, is what Peter is saying. On the outside, it may appear better to not embrace Christ and go through the difficulty that Christians go through. But that's a foolish thing to do. Because if you think this is difficult, we can't even describe what that difficulty will be like. If this judgment is difficult, the, di the judgment of those who are outside is indescribable. So what's the answer? Well, for believer and for those who are here who are unbelievers, Notice verse 19. Therefore, in light of all this, in light of the difficulty that you're facing and the fact that God is separating the sheep and the goats even now in the church, let the one suffering according to the will of God, and don't ever forget that, according to the will of God, he is sovereign over it. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Do you know what it says? It says, hand yourself over to your God who you know loves you. Why would we do this? It's because it's exactly what Jesus did. 
This is back earlier in 1 Peter. It's the example of Jesus. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. But what did he do? He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Let me ask you this question. Can you entrust your trials and difficulties to God? Can you do that? And if we are threatened to say, no, no, I mean, it's, just, it's too much. Be reminded of what Paul himself says. If the father has given you his greatest possession, his own son, how can you doubt that he'll give us all things? Remember that when you go through the trials and the difficulties. That God's goal and his, his end goal is not to crush you. It is not to see you drown. It is to strengthen you, to reward you, to set you up for the life to come. Even to allow you to show forth the glory of Christ Jesus to those who are not believers. Let me say again, if you're an unbeliever here, Again, you may look and you say, boy, we've kind of cast a, a difficult life for the believer. And I'm not going to deny that Jesus himself said that it was going to be through great difficulty that his people ultimately make it into the heavenly kingdom. Thankfully, God's grace is sufficient. But I would appeal to you because God's word is quite evidently clear about this, that there is a judgment coming. And that judgment, you do not want to be found on the side of the goats. You want to be found on the side of the sheep who have embraced Christ and have his righteousness and will therefore enter into paradise because he has promised it. So saint, are you suffering today? Are you feeling a little bit of that pressure from the world? Then as Peter says, don't, don't be ashamed. Rejoice in it because God loves you and he only gives you that sort of persecution, that trial, that difficulty that he know you can endure to prove your faith and to show you faithful and to reward you in the life to come. Would you join me in prayer? Father, I thank you that these things are true. I thank you for the repetition of it. You have numerous times told us that you love us and that our sufferings and our trials are from your hand. And we believe it. So we thank you for it. We rely upon you the, this day and I pray for the saints here that they would endure their suffering with joy. And I pray for unbelievers here that they would in, embrace your son, believe in him and trust in him. In Jesus' name, amen.